This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for joining us. Based on recent research from Gallup and from Barna, we know that our nation is in a terrible state of biblical illiteracy. And unfortunately, this is also true in the church. 60% of Americans can't even name five of the Ten Commandments. Only 10% of Americans have been found to have a consistent biblical worldview. And maybe that's why, in part, we see so many people believing things about God that simply are not true. What are some of those lies that people believe? How do we answer them? That's what we're going to be exploring today with Dr. Chris Thurman. He is an author, speaker, and psychologist who has been in private practice for over 25 years. He's out with a new book, The Lies We Believe About God, Knowing God for Who He Really Is. Chris, it's great to have you here. How are you today? Janet, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. All right. You say, and I think you're right about this, that how we view God is the most important thing about us. Why do you say that is? Well, um, I think uh, the fundamental way that we perceive reality is the key issue as we go through life. And there is no more important issue about reality than who God is. Right. So I kind of link it up to the beliefs that we hold are fundamentally what make or break us, and the enemy is out to especially submarine our view of God because then we go through life in a much more watered-down and non-abundant way. Yes, very true. How widespread do you think the problem is of people you've talked to not really understanding who God is and having a distorted view of him. Is that fairly typical, would you say, or is it more rare? How often do you see that? Uh, I don't mean this flippantly, but I would say 7 billion people. (laughs) That's well said. (laughs) That's true. That's true. All of us have distorted views of God at times. But for those who are really distorting God, do you tend to see that it's more emotionally based or more knowledge, you know, lacking in knowledge about God? Well, I don't know if this is... uh a good answer, but uh, I believe it's more experientially based, meaning not in a psychobabble way, but when we're growing up and fundamentally not only how we are treated, but what we are taught uh, pushes us in the direction of these faulty views. And so I do believe that Uh, We just don't suddenly show up as adults with a faulty view of God. That's been in the uh, kind of in the uh, oven for a long time. And uh, by the time we realize what our faulty views are, we've believed them for decades if we're not careful. That's true. Now, you talk about something called the killer peas in relationship to people having a distorted view of God. Talk a little bit about some of those killer peas. Well, the perpetrator is one. And that's, uh, we war not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of darkness. And one of the titles that Satan has is the deceiver. So from the time we get here, I think he's working however he can to induce us to believe things that are not true. 
again, not in a psychobabble, blame mom and dad way, but how we are parented, uh, given that we look at our parents as God's small g when we're young, has a huge impact on whether or not we see God as loving or hateful or indifferent. Yeah. Uh, thirdly, uh, if we grow up in church, the preaching that we get, how we are taught to view God, and therefore if God is portrayed accurately from the Word, then I think we grow up with a healthier view of who He really is. Mm-hmm. If He is portrayed inaccurately, then we can buy into that. Mm-hmm. And then two others, I think we have a tendency to project our own negative qualities onto God as if he can't be any different from who we are. And finally, pride. I think all of us, me included, have a tendency to think that we've got a pretty pretty good bead on God when actually uh, it is grossly distorted how we view him. But I think our pride gets in the way of us admitting that. I think all of that is true. All of that is true. And I hone in, especially, first of all, on what you said about parenting. There are any number of people, for example, who will say, my father was abusive. How can I ever see God as a father? Right. And and wonder how they can ever bridge that gap. I feel it so strongly. My experience was so horrible. I don't know, despite what the Bible says about God as father, I don't know if I can accept God as father. What do you do to even help somebody work through that sort of an issue? Well, it is a a very tough issue to work through. Uh, I wouldn't want to be, you know, at all uh, superficial about it. And uh, in my role as a psychologist, we are helping people all the time try to overcome the uh, just destructive impact of an abusive upbringing. But I do think what we can do is really help people, if not challenge them, to see that God is not who mistreated them, and really get God separated from every earthly person that we've ever run into, because he is wholly different, never, ever would be abusive, and thus for us to study him so deeply that after a while we wouldn't even think of God as being similar to the people that we've run into down here. That's right. So it really requires you to get yourself out of your emotional ties, as it were, and to rely on what the Word of God tells us about God and who He is. And for a lot of us, to to what extent do you think it's affected by the fact that we do see these statistics on biblical illiteracy, that there simply are not as many of us as there used to be who really read and study the Bible? Well, I think that is a huge issue in our day and age, and that's why throughout the book, with each lie that I cover, I challenge the reader, please practice two of the disciplines with every lie, study and meditation. I don't think any of the people who read this book are going to overcome these faulty beliefs about God if they don't study to show thyself approved and really drill down into what Scripture teaches about God and meditate on it day and night. 
and then I add additional disciplines throughout the book. Yes, you do. Well, I want to dive into at least one lie before we have to go to our first break, and that is the lie that God's love must be earned. Now, I don't know how in the world we could ever come to that conclusion because that's the opposite. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever will believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We all should know that verse by now. Why is it that people will will think in that way? I have to earn God's love. Well, again, uh, I I don't want to keep sounding like the psychologist that I am, but we, we grow up experientially in a conditionally loving world. So I, I, I don't think we can just suddenly magically do a 180 and think that God's any different. True. So even if we intellectually know that God's love can't be earned and that it's who he is and that it can't be raised or lowered by our actions, down in our gut, we don't think he's any different from anybody else and that we have to jump through certain hoops for him to love us more. Wow. What have you heard along those lines? Have you heard anybody ever actually come out and say to you, I just need to earn God's love or speak in that way? I have not heard very many, if any, people overtly come out and say that. But when I work with them over time, we always end up surfacing that as the way that they really think down in their gut. And so that's, you know, all of us need to quit thinking that what we believe up in our mind is what we actually believe down where it really matters. Right. And, and and get a hold of the truth, maybe fundamentally, that God even says in his word that your mistake is you thought I was just like you. you know, my, right. my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. That seems to be a, a starting point where you say God is completely different than you are. And, and if you can understand that, maybe you can make some progress toward, toward understanding who he really is. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So important. Well, there are a lot of other lies here that I want to get into and get Dr. Chris Thurman to comment on and maybe give us some guidance on how we can reject some of the lies we believe about God. It's the name of his book. We'll be right back on Janet Mefford today. Story Company comes I Still Believe, based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp. I Still Believe reminds us that amidst life's storms, true hope can be found in Christ. He chose to walk into the fire with her. That's what love is. If one person's life is changed by what I go through, it will all be worth it. I Still Believe, starring K.J. Apa, Britt Robertson, Shania Twain, and Gary Sinise. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested. In theaters March 13th. More information is at IStillBelieveMovie.com. Christians losing their businesses for not baking wedding cakes for homosexuals. Parents losing custody for not affirming their child's gender identity. Big tech censoring Christian books, videos, and social media posts. This isn't a dystopian nightmare. It's America in 2020. But what will God's people do to respond to the sexual radicals whose rising social and political power is threatening our religious freedom and our free speech? It's time for Christians to get informed about the looming threats that we're facing and learn how to respond as both salt and light. That's why I'd like to personally invite you to join me at our second annual God's Voice Conference, a biblical response to LGBTQ plus tyranny coming to Oklahoma City on April 17th and 18th. 
you'll hear from an unprecedented lineup of some of the leading Christian thinkers, pastors, pro-family activists, and medical and therapeutic experts who are fighting on the front lines of this battle and standing firmly on God's word in the face of growing LGBTQ plus opposition to Christianity. Let me tell you, there's nothing else like God's Voice Conference to get Christians ready to stand in this evil day. So I hope to see you at the God's Voice Conference and outreach of First Stone Ministries, April 17th and 18th in Oklahoma City, and take advantage of our early bird discount registration, only $85 through March 1st. So don't delay, go to godsvoice.us. That's godsvoice.us and register for a conference unlike any other. Go to godsvoice.us and register now. What the church needs now is God's voice. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Glad you're here. We're talking about a very important subject, the name of the book, The Lies We Believe About God, Knowing God for Who He Really Is, by Dr. Chris Thurman, who is joining us. Chris, we were talking about the lie that often people will embrace that God's love must be earned, and this is tied in many cases to the idea that since love is conditional on earth, that must be how God works. What about God is a is a shamer. One of the anecdotes that you share here in this chapter is about, of all people, Adolf Hitler. How does Adolf Hitler <laughs> tie into this idea that God is a shamer? Well, I open with that story because, uh, for some reason, I've had a little bit of an interest in that particular historical figure, and uh, his upbringing was incredibly shaming, and. Uh, you know, for it to translate into him becoming one of the most evil people to ever walk the planet uh, is me trying to heighten everybody's awareness that the enemy is into shame Hmm. and condemnation, and the enemy would like all of us to believe that God is as well. How was he shamed, specifically? Uh, He had an abusive father. Uh, who just really uh, emotionally, verbally, physically was abusive. He had an overindulgent mother who uh, basically, um, again, indulged him. And so he ended up with this kind of rather shame-based split of thinking too highly of himself and too lowly of himself. Hmm. And I think uh, the enemy took advantage of that split to get him operating out of his shame. And that's what happens with us on a different level. But um, I I think we walk around with a lot of feelings of shame that we're just totally worthless, you know, horrible, awful, no goodness, and that we're not worthy of love, and that if there's a problem in a relationship with anybody else. It's got to be our fault because it can't be about them. And uh, so in that chapter, I try to take people into, again, verses and truths that they know intellectually, but don't really believe down in their gut, like God made you fearfully and wonderfully so in his image. Mm. And that's the opposite of somebody trying to shame you is to let you know that you're an image bearer and that you are precious, and that you are the apple of his eye, and that he 
equipped you with abilities and talents and that he's adopted you into his family and that he's forgiven your sins. I mean, that's just, again, the opposite of a shaming God who's got a stick in his hand waiting to whack you whenever you step out of line. Right. And, you know, it's interesting because this brings up something that is good to differentiate. On the one hand, we are sinners. If we weren't sinners, we wouldn't need a Savior. But on the other hand, God is not like the shaming, abusive father. What's wrong with you? You stink. You're horrible. You bring, you know, disgrace upon the family. That sort of shaming. Is that the sort of shaming that people have in mind when they believe the lie that God is a shamer, that that God is just mean and, and maybe sort of you know, just evil in that way, rather than dealing with sin in a loving way by taking our place on the cross. I think that is the distinction. I think a lot of people don't make that distinction, that God, being righteous and holy, absolutely hates sin. But a lot of us believe that he hates the sinner, he hates his own image bearers, and that he is just delighted to rub our face in our depravity uh, rather than discipline those whom he loves. Right. He is not sadistic. Absolutely. What about God's sovereignty, his control of the world? The Bible is very clear about this, that God is, you know, Lord over everything. He is Lord of all. And yet there are many people who will believe the lie that because something goes wrong in my life or something went terribly wrong over here, that God has lost control. How can anybody, I guess I have a problem with this because I've never wrestled with this one, but how can anybody believe if there is a God and we know who he is from scripture, that at any point in history, he loses control? If he lost control, how could he ever be God? Well, again, I think it's another example of how what we know up in our minds is not what we really believe in our more fallen human deeper way of thinking. And so here I'm trying to challenge people that there is a part of you, whether you'll admit to it or not, that looks at the world, sees how chaotic and out of control it looks and how evil is so rampant. And you, if you're not careful, will think that God has lost his sovereignty, that he is no longer omni. He's not all-powerful, he's not all-knowing, and he's not everywhere at once. And so a lot of people, and it's very revealing when you run into tragedy, because tragedy will have a way of surfacing this view in you, is that God can't be God if he didn't stop that from happening or if he permitted me to run into a horrible thing. So this sovereignty of God issue is, to me, crucial for us to get back to a higher view of God. Absolutely. And this ties into another lie you discussed, which is that God is mean and vindictive. For example, if you have a child die or, you know, a mom who has six kids and the father dies in a car accident or something like that. God, how could you have done this? Mm -hmm. You know how much I need this person. It's not fair. This is awful. But not to be uncaring about it, but really when you pull back from whatever the specific issue is, all of us understand that we all will die because of sin. We're in a fallen world. There are no promises made to us that everybody gets to live to the age of 100. We know that intellectually, but on a personal level, that can hurt. How do you bridge that gap between the reality of it and yet conveying to the person, God loves you, he cares about you in the midst of your pain, and he uses suffering in your life as a Christian? Well, what I try to do, uh, both in my practice and in the book, is not only go to the attribute of the goodness of God, and thus 
try to push all of us to realize that because he is good, he can't possibly be the opposite, which would be to be mean and vindictive. But I also try to drive home the idea that God permits free will. And therefore, if something happens to you that's bad, please don't blame God, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just amazing how often believers will even say, how could God do this to me? And it's like, do you view God as so hateful that he would do something evil to you? Or can we attribute that either to the enemy directly or people being sifted by the enemy and doing things that are mean, evil, and cruel. Yeah, it seems to come back to the argument, like you mentioned before, God could have stopped it, though. God could have stopped it. Yes, so-and-so got in the car, and he was drunk, and he got into an accident, and he killed somebody, and that's a tragedy. But God could have stopped him. Yeah, that's a wrestling, isn't it? Because on the one hand, we want to be able to make choices, and yet we want to blame everything on God when our choices don't turn out the way we wanted them to. Well, I think you're hitting the real tender spot of it all, which is God could have stopped it. But there I try to talk my clients into making a distinction between the permissive will of God and the desired will of God. Right. And given that he created free will, even to his own son's death on the cross, he is going to permit things to happen that even he doesn't desire. And therefore, we don't want to, you know, be hypocritical. It's like we're okay if he permits nice things to happen to us, but we're not okay if he permits bad things Mm -hmm. to happen to us. Like Job. Yep. Yeah, I don't think we can have our cake and eat it too on that one. Yeah, and we can't ignore that God has dealt with the problem that ails our world, and that is sin. He's dealt with it, and we are awaiting the final consummation of things. You know, if you think about it, if he were to stop everything to make my life perfect— that that would be the end of things, right? Because we're mm-hmm. still awaiting that final, you know, wonderful end of all time where Christ will rule and reign and that we will be with him and there will be no more sin. That's coming. And that also gives us hope in the midst of trial and tribulation that it's not always going to be this way. Yeah, that's that's beautifully put. And that's that's why we have our hope for what's coming and try to, with dignity and integrity, handle the bad things that happen while we're here. Yes. Now, let's go to the lie about God ignoring our disobedience. That's kind of a laugh if he's (laughs) omnipresent and sees everything we do and omniscient, knows everything. How in the world can people believe God ignores our disobedience? Is it just, I'm better than the guy down the street, so God will kind of wink like a grandpa and put me on his lap and go, that's okay, son, don't worry about what you just did wrong. Yeah, well, if they don't fall into that he's going to ignore it, I think the permutation on this particular lie is that he's not going to do anything about it. There you go. That he notices, but he's going to turn a blind eye. And so in that chapter of the book, I try to drive home the idea that um, God's wrath is another attribute and that he loves us too much to ignore Uh, our disobedience. I mean, no parent in their right mind would raise a kid in that way, because you know you turn out this horribly destructive, antisocial person. Um, So it's really important to 
to actually shift your thinking to it's a good thing metaphorically when I get a speeding ticket mm-hmm. uh, because that way I am a little bit more careful about my driving behavior. Yes, that's a good analogy for me. <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sorry, officer. I'm really sorry. Yeah, and I always yeah. seem to get pulled over by the police officer who sees me going 40 in a 30, and I think, oh, I wasn't even really speeding that right, much. Right. But it's yeah. true. It's good for us, and it does slow us down, and it makes us consider how gracious and how wonderful and merciful God is toward us in spite of our failures and our sins and all of our weaknesses that sometimes do cause us to embrace some of these lies. Well, the name of the book is The Lies We Believe About God, Knowing God for Who He Really Is. And you can get the book and you can read more about some of these other lies that we didn't have time to get to. But it was just so good to be talking with Dr. Chris Thurman about all of these lies and the study and meditation that we all need to do in the Word of God. Chris, thank you so much for being here. It was great to talk to you. Janet, thank you. I appreciate it. Absolutely. God bless. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Meffer today. What is a public school teacher to do when the students he's trying to teach are out of control? And what is that teacher to do when standard methods of dealing with problem students either aren't working or he isn't allowed to fully employ those methods? Well, my next guest offers an insider's perspective on the problem and proposes a solution as well. Sinke Henderson is a former teacher. He's current writer for Showtime's The Shy. And the name of his latest book is Sit Down and Shut Up, How Discipline Can Set Students Free. Sinke, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Hey, I couldn't be more delighted. Thank you guys for bringing me on. Well, it's good to talk to you about this. I find this really interesting because you have been a substitute teacher, I know, in some of the toughest schools in America. How did yep. your time as a sub come about? Here you are a, a, in film and TV writing, and you're also a substitute teacher. You don't often hear about that. <laughs> well, well, a good question. Um, I'm kind of a... Uh, as a writer, I, uh, I that is my sort of that what that's what pays my bills for the most part. Um, but as a writer, I'm a bit of a bum, in the sense of if I if it were up to me, I'd be in bed at four in the morning, <laughs> and that ends up kind of throwing off my day. And so a friend of mine who had a charter school was a principal at charter school said, "Look, you should sub a couple uh, days a week." Both of my parents were educators, uh, and so I and I always been involved with it be tutoring even in college um and i always liked it um so i said yeah why don't i do that it'll give me a way to organize my day organize my week and so i did it um i sort of signed up went to the school had a both a a wonderful time but also a crazy outrageous time oh yeah sort of the opening anecdote is about this experience really i think it was either my first or second period on my first day where this kid you know, called me, as they say in the South, called me everything but a child of God. Uh, wow. Then the crazy part is they put him out of my class. I put him out. I got the campus. They sent him out. 
Um, and then five to ten minutes later, they sent him back into my class saying, okay, to return to class. There was no detention. There was no suspension. There was no calling home. I asked. Um, no sort of reconciliation pro- uh, process. And I thought, whoa, what's this? Yeah. Um, and so from there, kind of that was sort of the opening thing that sparked a, really a question. Anytime you write a book, you're really kind of answering a question. Right. And so that was kind of the very beginning. And it took me on kind of a crazy journey just trying to understand the public education system, trying to understand issues both of mainly of kind of class, but all there's some racial issues as well. I'm, I'm, I tend to the liberal side of things, um, but there are certain universal issues, certain universal truths, I think, that one of which is kids got to behave. Uh, yes, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's No right. matter where, what school they're in, what kind of with parochial school, public school, private school, and so that's the the substituting the substituting came in that way, um, and I found that it was terrific because one day I'd be in a poor public school in East LA, then the next day I'd be in a rich private school in West LA, hmm. then I'd be in a Jewish Orthodox uh, conservative school, then a Jewish Orthodox, as you've been a Jewish um, sort of uh, more liberal environment, and you really got a chance to look into a lot of different environments and see how things were working and what wasn't working and that kind of thing. Right. Well, that would that would maybe send me right out of the classroom if I had a student do that to me and just kind of call me names and go off on me. Well, how often did that sort of thing occur during your time as a sub? Well, you know, I'm a pretty tough guy. Um, once the students kind of got used to me, it stop happening because um i don't play a lot of games as they say it's good and before <laughs> before i go i also want i do want to make the point i'm african-american black guy. i do want to say that even though my experience was in a so poor black and poor latin schools this is actually a serious kind of universal problem yeah it's and it's not even necessarily taught it, it there is a component of what that has to do with poverty and that kind of thing um but the poor rural schools in white in the app along the appalachian trail and the midwest are dealing with this kind of thing but even some of the upper middle class schools just this um freedom that the and the word isn't even freedom just this license that the young young kids or young students feel that they have in relationship to adults yes um and it's everywhere it's different versions in really rich schools really sort of rich upper class schools but there is a version of it a friend of mine who teaches in seattle she literally sent me a text yesterday said a kid walked into his class he was having his uh doing his planning period he's a white guy the student was white she walked into his class he said i you're not you got to go back to your class he says i'm not going anywhere and then she sat down and just started calling her boy, texting, calling her boyfriend in his class, and he couldn't get her to leave. Oh, man. Uh, so it, it's universal there. It gets worse where there is poverty. Um, and I can tell you one of the opening stories, and there's another aspect to it. As again, I say, my book is primarily about sort of black and Latin inner city schools, but this was a fascinating thing that I think related to what's going on in the Midwest today. I was driving home. I couldn't. I was talking to a teacher at this particular school that I took on a long-term assignment with, and he had gone to that school as a student, and he said, you know, the school was always tough. The kids used to fight each other. Now they fight the teacher. Yeah. That stunned me, right? Yeah. And right. I was like, what the heck happened? You know, how did we get here? Because we fought all the cats and dogs all the time when we were young, but we never cursed at a teacher. No we way. never fought a teacher. No way. 
So when I so there are a couple of things. One that was very dramatic. So I was driving home one day, and Jay Z, wife of the husband, excuse me, husband of Beyonce, <laughs> he said they. It was on I think NPR, and the interviewer asked him what, um, what was the impact of crack cocaine coming into your neighborhood? And he had sold crack, as everyone knows, when he was young. And he said the most fascinating thing to me that I'd ever heard. He said it destroyed the authority figure. Really. Now, I was like, what the heck is he talking about? And so I started, I listened more, and then I started to do research. Because of the mandatory drug sentences that were given to drug dealers, which we all kind of cheer for on some level, fundamentally, um, they shifted the dealing of uh, crack cocaine to kids. They gave it to young kids, to, because if you were an adult, you would go to jail for 10 years. Right. If you were a kid, you go for three months and then be back out on the streets. <sighs> And so crack cocaine was really a child's economy. And there are economists who said you cannot underestimate the impact of crack cocaine on poor inner city neighborhoods. It swept through those neighborhoods like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Oh, it's awful. And, and the kids were the ones making the money. And because crack was so addictive, the adults were the ones debasing themselves for the crack cocaine. And so I, in the first chapter, I say, look, this is something that we have to look out now for the opioid crisis. Yes. We have to look at that and the impact it's having as much as we want to look at those doctors and those pharmaceutical companies for what they're putting that poison into the street. We got to make sure we're responding to that in the best way because there are always bad consequences. Wow. I never knew that. That 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 raises the stakes right there when you learn about the child economy and crack cocaine. And and obviously, I mean, I'm white, so that's not a world I run in necessarily. But that's that's an important education for all of us to know that's going on. Absolutely. And I didn't I grew up in the South. I grew up in a pretty much poor black town or middle working class black town in the South. So crack cocaine never really touched us. But when I but the fallout from it worldwide, it was such an aggressive um, incursion into poor inner city communities. And it completely upended the way young people saw adults. So I wasn't teaching the kids who were dealing 20 years ago, but I'm teaching their kids. Yes, right. You know what I'm saying? So they grew up with the same resentment, the same, because, I mean, crack took over, the same way the opioids are taking over those white, poor inner uh, 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 cities and towns in the Midwest, crack cocaine wiped through those and it was it was joblessness and drug addiction. Just that that compound effect was devastating. Yeah, and absolutely. we have to look back. And as a people, whatever side of the aisle you're on, we're obviously in a time where there's a lot of fighting between different sides of the aisle. There's certain things that I think the opioid crisis, which is affecting primarily poor whites, crack cocaine primarily affected poor blacks and poor Latins. Is something for us to learn from. ID share difficult experiences. For sure, for sure. And, really and, important point. Yeah, and I, that's one thing I hope the book, the book is a tough book. It really is an honest book, but it's, it's also, I think, a, I think a hopeful book um, in the sense of I do try to suggest here are ways we can deal with this and both with compassion, but also we need stringency too. We need discipline as well. Very, very true. We're going to come back and talk about that. Sinke Henderson with us. His book is Sit Down and Shut Up, How Discipline Can Set Students Free. We'll come back.
the healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org JMT. When an abortion-minded woman walks into a preborn center, it is a divine appointment. It's where she encounters the love of Jesus Christ and has the opportunity to meet the beautiful life growing inside of her and find out that every baby's life matters. I got to hear how strong her heartbeat was. I was like, I felt like she was supposed to be here. And it didn't matter what anybody else told me. And all that mattered was that I was blessed with the ability to carry life inside of my body. And that baby was supposed to be here for something. And that was all that mattered. 80% of women in crisis pregnancies choose life after meeting their babies on ultrasound. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your donation goes toward saving babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. We're back on Janet Mefford today. Glad you're here and glad to be talking with Sinke Henderson, a former teacher, substitute teacher. He's talking a little bit about his experience in some of America's toughest schools in his book, Sit Down and Shut Up, How Discipline Can Set Students Free. You were laying out for us, Sinke, before we went to the break, the fact that you have the drug problem, the crack cocaine, the child economy, and that, how that informs the situation in a lot of these tougher, maybe, you know, urban environments that you've been in and that you've taught in. But as you mentioned before, you have a problem with erasure of the line between adult and child all over this country. And I've seen this too. all kids. I mean, I've seen this to some extent where they they just don't respect adults for being adults. And people talk about things also like the impact of TV, where you see the bumbling father on the sitcoms or the breakdown of the family. How do you think those things play into this lack of discipline that you're seeing when you're standing in front of a classroom full of students? It's absolutely a part of it. And again, as I said, I'm African-American. I'm black. I grew up in a working class environment where there was complete uh, respect for authority. Um, uh, You know, white students, black students, it doesn't matter. One of the things that happened that I realized was, um, and generally speaking, as I said earlier, I tend to the liberal side of things, but some of these are universal truths. One of the things I realized that happened was I remember going into one school. It was a, a school not far from me in Los Angeles. And these kids, they were just going crazy. And like any other teacher, like, I'm going to hold you in for recess if you don't get it together. And they looked at me and they said, you can't do that. We have a right to play. What? And so I was like, what the heck are they talking about? So I tried to hold them in. And then later on, the administrator came and said, yeah, we, we don't do that. Our kids have a right to play. I didn't know what they were talking about. 
Well, in 1989, the United Nations passed something called the Declaration of the Rights of the Child. Yes. And one, they are, there are many that are terrific. They're, a child has a right to a name. That's a beautiful thing. They have a right to be safe from child, um, uh, aggressive child labor and to be conscripted in the war. You know, all just the right to education. All things, no matter who you are, you would accept and agree. Mm-hmm. But they also, they, they also said kids have a right to freedom of speech. Who has a right to free? What child has a right to freedom of speech? <laughs> I, then they said a kid has a right to practice their own religion or no religion. I remember thinking, my dad was a preacher. If I was yeah. about woke up at nine saying I'm not going to work because I'm not, pra-, he would have. That wouldn't have happened. Let's yeah. just put it that way. Yeah, exactly. And then, but then they said a child has a right to play, and I remember thinking, oh, that's where they got it from. And so, and let me, don't mind you, I get the sentiment behind it. Of course, it's in the nature of all young mammals frankly, to want to play. Sure. But you don't have a right to play over that superior to your right and obligation to be respectful to an adult. Yes. And you certainly don't have a right to play that can neutralize a, a, an adult's right to pull you back in the line. And so universally, this is a thing going on. Again, no matter the class, no matter the race, no matter the income level, and I think you're right with some of the cultural things, you know, we do in this economy, we do play to what kids like and what kids want. You know, advertisers, what do the 13 to 19-year-olds want? What do the, you know, 18 to 35-year-olds want? This is, in the same way that crack cocaine was in the inner cities, this is a kind of a child's economy. Mm-hmm. It's driven by what do the, you know, that's what advertisers want. That's the coveted market. And... You know, kids aren't the ones that should be driving our society. Exactly. Exactly. Because we're, we're charged as adults with making sure that they turn into responsible adults, not making sure they're all Veruca Salt and they get everything they want now, 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 now. I mean, that's a recipe for disaster. And I agree with you that discipline is so important. The question is, how do you make that happen in the classroom when there are so many challenges, not just with the kids being disrespectful, but sometimes even with the administration in a school that says, well, you can't can't really clamp down on the kid. I mean, how, how do you advise teachers to deal with that, teachers in the public school who can relate to what you're talking about? Well, you know, there really is, I try to go as deep and uh, as possible as I can with the, um, with the book to talk about just both policy-wise and sort of individually. It's, more, it's a bit, it's, so it's both broad and some sort of specific things. Um, there's one aspect, so for example, fatherlessness, boys who grow without fathers, they tend to be a little more erratic in their behavior. That's just a given. Yeah. So, you know, we have, I think, the, so say black neighborhoods, for example, only 2% of the public school teachers are black men. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe 20% are men, period. And I know a lot of people don't like, oh, gender doesn't matter. Eh, it does matter sometimes. Yeah. You know, and men, the presence of men in public schools can be helpful in just, what, look, we're half the population. So, you know, that is helpful. Trying to recruit more men, I think, into, and more than just the coach, although that's abundantly helpful, and I think can be beneficial as a general rule. There's just, I don't think there's any environment that should have, you know, only 10% women or only 10% men, you know, every environment needs some sort of 
um, that gender parity. Not 100%, but you, you, under, you understand. Oh, I, I do. I do. Especially, I think you were saying in the book at one point, you know, it's hard for a mom if you just have a mom at home to wrestle a gun from you or, you know, overpower you if you're yeah, well, a big teenager. You this need- is what I realized. This was a fascinating revelation that I had. I was watching these uh, middle school students. And he one was saying, "Oh, I'm worried about seeing my dad this weekend because he um, he punches me when he's mad." And another one said, "Yeah, me too." I knew that they were actually bragging. If you don't know how boys talk, middle school boys, I knew they were bragging about the strength of their fathers, hmm. right? So then I was on Twitter, and this older black these are black guys, but it doesn't matter. I'm just having um, with the races. They were saying, "Fellas, what age were you when you challenged the authority figure, the male authority figure in your in your life?" And it was hysterical responses from these guys who were like, I was 13, I was taller than my dad, and so I kind of said something reckless. My dad punched me in my chest and knocked me on the floor. Still my best friend. Still, be- So it was just these series of responses. And I realized that what was going on was when boys hit puberty, and they're suddenly bigger than their mom, stronger than their mom, faster than their mom, and again, this doesn't have anything to do with race. And they realize somewhere in the back of their mind that they could actually hurt their mom. In fact, to be even more direct, even kill their mom if they really set their mind to it. They think subconsciously that they're an adult. Yeah. They think subconsciously that they're a man. That's just that's just the nature of gender. And I'm I'm here for gender equality. I'm here for uh, sex. You know, I want people to be who they are. But a mom cannot, at a certain age, cannot cannot overpower her son. No, no. But if, but if you have a dad and you talk to him recklessly and say something and he knocks you in your chest or, or picks you up off your feet, you realize, oh, I'm not, a, I'm not an adult yet. Exactly. I'm still a kid. Yeah, And, and exactly. that's important to tamp down the, the hormonal surge of his belief in his own maturity. That's a great insight. It's true. And, and I mean, this points out the difference between mom and dad. I mean, I've lived that. I have a 6'3 son who's 17 years old, and I can attest to that. He's bigger Absolutely. than I am. Yep. Absolutely. And so it dawned on me why, you know, I was actually talking to this really great um, psychiatrist named Steven Pinker, and he is the one, he just randomly said, oh, there's this study that boys who grow up without fathers in neighborhoods where there are fathers turn out okay. So it made me think, well, what's it like for a boy who grows up without a father in, other na- in a neighborhood where other boys don't have fathers? And that's very prevalent in poor communities, white and black. Um, and it dawned on me, oh, this, this mechanism, this psychological mechanism for boys, they need someone, whether it's a dad or a father figure, to say, watch it. Mm-hmm. Yep, the boundaries. They need those boundaries. And it's unqu- And so, again, one of the prescriptions in the book is more male figures in their lives in these schools. I saw it as a, as a guy in these schools. Like, these boys will respond to me in a way that they just would not respond to female teachers. It's just the truth. It is the truth. And, yep. and it's the reverse with the girls. I taught in the middle school. Those girls gave me the flux, <laughs> but they love their female teachers. Funny. You know, it's just, and you yeah. know, once you get older, it's a different thing. But in that period when you're moving from fifth to sixth grade, into particularly in the middle school, when your hormones kick in, you turn into, it's just, you just, there's a different type of relationship that you have to your own body, relationship psychology that comes in, relationship to adults. And you need that. And that's just one of the, sort of one of the recommendations in the book that we really need to make public schools a more welcome place for the male presence. Yeah. Um, 
Exactly. Without job, you know, women have done remarkable things in public education. I was educated properly by women. So I in no way, shape, or form want to uh, downplay the importance. Um, but men are equally important in the development of boys and girls. Absolutely. No, I agree completely. I I think you're right on the money about that. And I think there's a generation of kids who are coming along who desperately want those boundaries and they want because that's in in large measure how they know that the adults in their lives care about them. And I think this is a really important book in that regard. It's called Sit Down and Shut Up, How Discipline Can Set Students Free. Sinke Henderson with us. Sinke, it was great to have you here. Really, really appreciate your being with us. Hey, this has been a treat. Thank you so much. And thank you to your audience. Go out and get that book and let's uh, get the conversation going about it. Sounds great. Thanks again, Sinke. Really appreciate it. Take care. All right. You too. God bless you. And we'll see you next time here on Janet Mefford Today. Our website is always JanetMefford.com. This hour of Janet Mefford Today was brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe. Based on the real life true story of chart topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe rated PG. Parental guidance suggested in theaters March 13th. More information is available at I Still Believe Movie.com.